I want to talk for a little while this afternoon on, on one of the more difficult concepts. When we think of following Christ and, and doing the will of God and, and striving to have a, a life in service to Him, we want to talk for a little about a little about an examination of the heart. You know, the, the heart is, a, is an interesting thing. Um, you can do a lot of things right, and maybe your heart's just not there. Um, you know, we think of it when people do certain things, and we've seen them do it, and they, they do some sort of performance or some accomplishment, and people may look at that and they say, well, you know, they just didn't do as good as they possibly could. Their heart just didn't seem to be in it. And as we think about our lives and our lives and our duty that we have to God, we think about the, our heart. And we study and we have countless teachings on what our heart should be. And oftentimes we feel like we fall short of that, don't we? And we can get a lot of things right, but it's the heart that matters. In 2 Corinthians 13 and 5 it says, Examine your hearts, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves, know ye your own selves, how that Jesus Christ in you, except ye be reprobates. You know, it talks there about proving your own selves. We have mathematical proofs, and you could probably talk to Jenny about these things. A proof is, is used to convince or justify that a certain statement or equation is true. And it holds true in the same sense in this verse. If we're to prove our own selves, then we want to be able to justify that. And not just justifying on our own minds, because that's easy. We can justify a lot of things away in our actions, in our thoughts, in the things that we do, in our service to God. It's easy to justify those things in our own minds. But how do we justify them to God? And I think we find that the only justification we find in that is the blood of Christ. So as we look at this self-examination, I think it's very important that we look at these things. And as it says there at the end of that verse, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates, worthless or rejected, if we don't have this examination and we don't have a heart that's true to God. In Matthew 15 and verse 18, it says, But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. You know, the heart determines our other actions, right? It's what goes on in our heart that determines the things that we're willing to do. The things that we're willing to accept, those things are, are planted within our heart. And we can write a lot of other things and still have a heart that's not right with God. We can hide our heart from men by only letting them see the parts of us that we want them to see, can't we? But God reads our heart. He knows our heart, and he will judge our heart. So it's very important that we get this right, even though it's a, it's a difficult concept sometimes to understand and many times to get right in our lives. In Matthew 5 and verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And certainly that one, one piece there is what we all want. We all have that same goal to see God. And to do that, we need to be pure in heart in order to accomplish that goal. Matthew 23, verses 25 through 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within are all full of exhortation and excess. 
Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now I've heard this debate before. Individuals will talk about these things and say, well, how, do you, how are you supposed to correct your heart? Should I correct the things that people see in the outward body? And hopefully those things bleed through and they lead to a, a cleansing of my heart? And, you know, you can have some back and forth there, and I think there's value to that, that we can clean up our actions, we can clean up the things that we do and how we treat others, and hopefully that bleeds over to our heart. And our heart can be cleansed, and we can hopefully uh, have a change of heart. But I don't think that's what this verse teaches. I think it teaches clean up your heart. It talks about the outward body seeming beautiful. The outward body being as... Uh, White men's, or the inside being dead men's bones at the same time. I think this verse teaches us, clean up the heart and everything else falls into place. And why is that? Because if the heart's right, then the, the actions are correct, and what proceeds out of our mouth becomes pure as our heart is pure. Now that's easy to say, I realize that. That is very easy to say. And it's something very difficult to accomplish. But I think that is what we need to be concentrating on. Cleaning up our inward heart. And so that those things are reflected on the outside. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit. Unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible. By the word of God which liveth and abideth. Forever. Pure in heart, or excuse me, a pure heart means not just doing the right things. It means doing them for the right reasons as well. You know, I, I worked at a place one time and they were very big on putting the right people in the right place at the right time doing the right things. The right, 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 right. And that kind of leads back to the heart. We do it for the right th reasons. We do the right things. And that's the goal. And having a pure heart, constantly working on that heart, will lead us to right those things that need to be righted or corrected in our lives. In Matthew 7 and verse 12, we read there, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You know, we recognize that from very young children. We're taught that's the golden rule. Teach others, or treat others the way you want to be treated. And rightly so. What in this world couldn't be corrected if people just behaved in that manner? So many things, so many atrocities could be avoided if that simple concept were followed. But what do we know about this world? This world is not perfect. This world is not pure. And we can't expect that. That simple concept out of a place that's impure. So we must keep make sure that our hearts are pure so that those things are reflected in us and we can persuade others toward God. J 
just doing that one thing would correct so many things and so many things that we abhor about this world. In Matthew 5 and verse 46 and 47 it says, For if you love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you, and if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. It says don't just love your friends. That goes against that idea that Christians should live as hermits, doesn't it? We're not supposed to just retract within ourselves to the ones that are in this congregation. Why is that? It's easy for me to return love toward each of you. You're here. You're in, we're in support of one another. That's an easy thing to do. And I have no doubt if anybody in this building said, you know, I could really use a hand with whatever that was. People would respond to that. And this says that's easy. That's easy to do that, to return love for those who love you. But we have to extend that outside of these walls into our community, into our, our surroundings, whether that's our job, whether that's school, whatever the case is. We've got to extend it outside of these things and not just maintain it with those that love us. 2 Corinthians uh, 5 verses 10 and 11 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. We'll all answer for what we've done. And there's only one thing that can help us avoid that, and that's Christ. In that last day, it won't be justice we seek. It won't be justice. Because we'll all be there for mercy. And I suspect at that time, we'll want mercy for others more than we ever have. Because that, at that time, it will be made evident what it is that we strive for. Knowing what we know, we should care about others. And our conscience should help us help them. To know that that's what God would have us to do and to extend that to them. In Matthew 7, verses 3 and 4, And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine eye. You know, I thought about that a lot over, over the years. I remember that when I was a kid. Somebody, I don't remember who was talking about this big beam that was in somebody's eye, and they... They probably couldn't even see around it to see what was going on in someone else's life. But they look at them and they saw the, the small things that they had and made a big deal out of that. And I've always remembered that. You know, I don't believe this means that we have to be perfect in order to help someone. We can't have a perfect life and everything about us and everything that we've done has just been in total perfection. We know that's not possible. So I don't think it's saying if you've got ever committed any kind of sin, then you can't help someone with whatever it is they struggle with. But I think it does tend to tell us we ought to have some common sense. If we struggle greatly with something, we're probably not the one to re extend that hand to someone else and say, this is what you need to do with your life. Maybe we need some help in that area as we strive to help others.
you know, if you, if, when you think about that concept, you know, we look at other people sometimes and it's easy to see those things in their lives. Yet, it's so difficult at times for us to see it in our own. And I think we should give pause to that. I think we should consider that. And when we see things or know things in other people's life, maybe that's a good time for us to do an examination of ourselves and see, you know, are we guilty of those same things before we go out and maybe point it out in someone else's life? Do we count others better than ourselves? I think the scriptures teaches us a concept on that. In Philippians 2 and verse 3, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. You know, we shouldn't do things for glory in our lives, should we? But at the same time, we shouldn't do them begrudgingly. You know, if we're going to re extend our hand to, to someone, it goes back to that, doing the right things for the right reasons. And we shouldn't be begrudging of that if we, if we extend that to someone else. It sort of negates uh, that reasoning for us doing it. You know, we're all here for a common goal. And I think it's important that we see that. We all want the same things. And we all want to accomplish the same goal, and that's to help one another reach heaven. And so when we reach out to others, we need to do it for the right reason, reason, not for gaining glory or begrudgingly. These seem absurd in a healthy congregation, don't they? When we look at a congregation that, that looks to uplift one another and we look at it and we're all lurking towards the common goal and we think how silly it is to even talk about, you know, concepts of someone bringing someone else down for it to become a contest between one person and another it just doesn't seem that just seems so foreign in a place that's supposed to be one one for all and all for one for lack of a better word yet these things can happen to us if we don't guard our hearts against it we're all part of one body as we know and it's not an individual contest for us to try and accomplish those things we haven't gained anything if we gain it just as one. We need to work toward that common goal. As we look at our hearts, do we think that we're righteous and put others down? In Luke 18, 9 through 14, it says, And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. We compare ourselves every day and avoid where we need to be. Too many times we look at that and we look at someone else and we look at their failures and think that that somehow justifies us or lifts ourselves up. Here it calls that exalting ourselves. And it need not be that way. 
need not be that way at all. Too many times we use the wrong standard. We use the wrong standard in how we measure our lives. And I realize when we look at Christ, and it's a concept that, that maybe we haven't thought of before. When you look at Christ's life and you think, that's the example that I'm to live by. That example is extreme. That, that may be confu a confusing statement. Christ's life was extreme. I'll give you an example. I watched a documentary a while back called Free Solo or something like that. It's a guy that climbed rocks. I know I talk a lot about my viewing preferences, but I see a lot of examples when I do that. This guy was known for being able to, to scale walls. And there was a particular one, and I don't remember where it was. It was, a, it was a mountain in one of the national parks. And it was one of the highest that was going to be climbed by somebody with no ropes, no safety nets, no nothing. Just a man and a rock. And he set out to climb this thing. Thought it was cheating a little bit. He climbed the thing about 12 times with ropes and things like that to figure out his, where he was going to go. But nonetheless... He climbed that thing. Not only did he accomplish that goal, he did it in less time than anybody ever even thought was possible. Now that's extreme. I don't think anybody else here would set out to climb something like that. It was straight up. The only thing he had was cracks in the rocks and maybe a few shrubs sticking out. At times he was holding on by fingertips or just the tip of a toe to try and do this. And he did it with no ropes, no nets. That's extreme. That's extreme enough. I can tell you I was nervous at times just watching it on the TV. It made me cringe at times. When we think of Christ's life and we think of all the expectations that are placed on us to reach that level, we know we won't reach that level because too many of us have already ruined it. We have things in our lives that we've done we know that each and one, each one of us know that we've sinned. And so we won't reach that. But nonetheless, it's our job to strive for it. It's our job to reach out towards that goal, towards that example that was set for our lives and do the absolute best we can. Christ's life was extreme because he was able to do it. And he did it not for himself, but he did it for the Father. You know, like I said, too many times we look to the wrong standard. I can remember Marlon talking about when I was a kid. He would talk about these football teams that they may go the entire season and never win a game. And that last game and they win. And what do they do? We're number one from one game. That's not measuring by the right standard, is it? And I understand these concepts. You know, we want children and, and kids, and we want them to feel successful, and that's not necessarily what that's about. But when we measure things, we should measure it in the right way, and that's in comparison to Christ. Not by those around us. Not by those we feel are less than us. Not by those who don't even know Christ or know what God's plan is for them in their lives. We should measure it by Christ. You know, when we look at it, when someone's been overtaken in a trespass, do we seek to help them or crush them? 
You know, that, that's a heart thing. That's in our heart. How we approach those things. What's said in our heart? Are we there to help them? Or to remind them just what a bad thing that they've done? In Isaiah, excuse me, I skipped ahead. In Galatians 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, he which, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one, in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, this takes interaction with the brother, doesn't it? And I know Brett, Brett spoke a little bit about this concept not too long ago, the last time he spoke. And I, I was in total agreement with him. The easier thing to do is just withdraw. Just ignore it. Just let it go. And uh, you know, sometimes if we can't wrap our minds or our hearts around some individual, maybe that's what's best for, for us as an individual. But we need to make sure these people are taken care of. And that may involve getting someone else to help them if we can't seem to do it ourselves. But that's definitely not a time to push somebody down, to hold them down, to set out to prove just how bad they are because of one instance of weakness in their life. And we have to remember that. Backing back up to Isaiah 65 and 5, it says, Which say, Stand by thyself, come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose and a fire that burneth all the day. You know, I think a lot of words in our language have lost meaning. I look at things and I think, you know, it's just not that bad. It doesn't really mean what it says. And I think a lot, we have to, to look at that. And I think it's probably because the constant barrage of marketing that we're faced with on a daily basis. You know, there may be some here that are able to avoid that because, you know, they're just not in a place... Matt probably could do that if he tried. Um, but you can't turn on a radio. You can't turn on a TV. You can't drive a road down a road with billboards. Or you're going to get hit with this stuff. And what do they tell you in these things? You can't live without this product. If you try to go in public without my product, you're going to be an embarrassment to yourself. We hear stuff like that, don't we? They push it to such extreme that words lose meaning. And I think across the English language, so much of that's been done that we ignore a lot of it. What about this here? These are a smoke in my nose and a fire that burneth all the day. That's talking about your creator. That's how he feels about these things. To stand by thyself, come not near me, for I am holier than thou. That's his feeling toward that sort of attitude. And so when we think about it, don't dismiss that as just another phrase that's thrown out there. Because it carries weight because of who it comes from and because of what it describes. As we continue thinking about the heart, you know, I think it's important that we measure up by the proper standard. Are we pure in heart? Do we have a loving heart? Are we humble when we deal with others? These are all things that we have to answer. 
when we look at our heart and do an examination of our hearts. And it's important that we do that. Because as it said before, we can clean up the outside, but the heart may still be as dirty as a dirty sock. And God sees it. And that's what God judges. You will be called into judgment before the Lord. In Romans 14, 11, and 12, it says, For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. We'll give an account. And that's not our choice whether or not we'll do that. It will happen. We will give an account. And God will judge our hearts. And it's important to know that Christ is the only thing that can cover those things that are lacking. In Luke 12, verses 2 and 4 through 5, it says, For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you, from, forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. It's a very strong warning, isn't it? Very strong. Don't just fear the ones in this life. The ones that can hurt us. The ones that can judge us. The ones that can put us down and embarrass us. Fear God. Because he's the one that will make that decision. And he's the one that will judge our hearts. We won't hide anything in that day. In 2 Peter 3 verses 10 through 13 it says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works there are, that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be, all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for now heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. In verse 10, it talks about the last day being as a thief in the night. You know, we never know when a thief's going to come. There are so many things in our lives that are that way. We just don't know when they're going to come. And we sort of get used to that so that nothing surprises us anymore. This will be a surprise. We won't be looking for it when it comes. And it's not going to be one of those days where we live our entire lives not knowing and then at the very end they're going to say, well, you know, tomorrow the Lord's coming. Everybody get ready. We won't have that opportunity. The only opportunity we have is now. Now. That's all we're guaranteed. That's all we have. And we need to remember that. These verses paint a frightening picture. But if we're ready and have tried to live to that extreme that Christ set, we can inherit a place where righteousness dwells. Where righteousness dwells. That's such a foreign concept to us in this world that we live in. In a place of purity and righteousness and the things that we deal with, we'll, we won't deal with them anymore. 
the fights that we have inside ourselves to try and live up to that standard will be gone. We'll finally make it to that goal. You want to be ready for that today? We want it for you. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.